I want you to take your Bibles this morning and I want you to turn to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1. Some of you are new at your Bible. You've never had a Bible. Or you're like Eddie who had a Bible but never read his Bible. Just because you have a Bible doesn't mean you read it. How many of you know what I'm talking about it? Some of you are Bible collectors. You have the NIV version, version. You have the NASB. You have the King James, the New King James, the Old King James, the Revived King James, the Living Word, the Word in Spanish, the Word Italian, the Word in French, the original Greek Word. And you got a whole stack of Bibles. The problem is you never really get into your Bible. So I want you to be readers and doers of the Word, not just collectors of the Word. Okay. So as you look at your Bibles, this, this book, Romans, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Um, as you look at your Bibles, the book of Romans was written to a great city, a huge city, the capital of the day. This city was the center of an empire. Not only was it a city, but this city uh, was the mega city of the day. It was the city of Rome. Uh, the, the letter was written to the church in Rome, so therefore it's called the letter to the Romans. It's like if a letter was written to Chicago, it would be called the letter to the Chicagoans. And so this book of Romans was written to people that lived in Rome that were followers of Jesus. And as I read Romans, it struck me that we have a lot of similarities between Rome and Chicago. I visited Rome a couple of times, modern day Rome. My mother lives in Spain and Spain is not that far from Italy. And so I've been to Italy a couple of times and Rome is a pretty incredible city. If you walk to the old part of Rome, you will see that there's a Colosseum. Colosseum was built about 2000, the original Colosseum about 2,000 years ago and could seat nearly 50,000 people. It's an incredible feat of architecture for its day. They say that they could evacuate 50,000 people out of the Colosseum in a matter of 15 minutes. I mean, hopefully no one would get trampled, but there was that many exits. And they would have major events in this Colosseum, bloody events in which people died. They would reenact battles in that Colosseum. They would actually flood the Colosseum with water and reenact boat battles there as well. So they, they were incredible in their architecture and ingenuity. Rome was the center of the known world. To be a Roman meant that you had access, citizenship, and power like no one in the world had. Rome had systematically conquered country after country after country after country and brought the wealth and the slaves of those country back to the city of Rome. In the days that Jesus lived, Rome was the conquering nation under which Israel was subjugated. If you remember the story of Jesus, you remember that when 
Jesus was to be crucified, they took him to the high priest because the high priest was the ruler of the Jewish people at the time, the religious ruler. But before they could execute Jesus, they had to get permission from the Roman authorities. And who was the Roman authority? You remember his name? Pontius Pilate. Uh, Roman, Rome let these conquered nations rule themselves to a certain degree, but they extracted taxes, people, and set up their government overall. So when Paul is writing this letter to the Romans, he had actually never been to Rome, but he had plans to go to Rome on his way to the country that I grew up in, Spain. So he's writing to the Romans, preparing them for his arrival, and he's talking to them about this big city. Uh, Rome has seven hills around the city, and there was extreme wealth and a lot of poverty. The density of Rome, there's about one million people that lived in a small area. For example, the population density in Chicago is about uh, 21,000 people per mile. Rome was 192,000 people per square mile. So they had a density five or six times more than that of Chicago. Imagine the neighborhood you live in, and now imagine having five times more people live in that neighborhood. You definitely have parking problems. You'd definitely be putting seats out in front of your parking space after you shoveled it, believe me. And so Paul was writing to this huge city of Rome. Rome was like Chicago. It had a lot of political power. Chicago has been known to be a city that raises politicians, our current president came up through Chicago. A lot of his staff and cabinet came through Chicago. And many people believe that some of the presidents of the past, they were made or broken by the political power yielded in this city. Uh, Rome was very diverse like Chicago is. Uh, Rome had slaves and people that had come from all over the world to this Big country, the Syrians, the Turkish, people from Egypt, people from Africa, and people from Spain lived in Rome. Like Chicago, incredible diversity. Uh, we have a, on the north side, Logan Square, Humble Park, have a huge Puerto Rican population uh, living up in, in that area of the woods. If you, if you look over in, toward the east of us, there's Chinatown, huge population of Asians, mainly Cantonese speaking from southern China, but now more and more Mandarin speaking have, have, have started to come to Chinatown as well. In the early days, places like um, Bridgeport or Canaryville were populated by a lot of Irish people who have moved further south and Mount Greenwood and so forth. There's a lot of people from Irish descent that came to this country. There was a lot of Italians that also uh, migrated to the city of Chicago during a certain period of our history. And Lithuanians and Polish uh, people came to this, uh, this city as well. There's more Polish people in the city of Chicago than any city outside of Warsaw itself, some, some scholars tell us. Uh, the African-American came 
migrated up from the south and came during seasons of the Great Depression a little bit afterwards to find work. And so you have a melting pot of people. And along with that melting pot of people, you have a melting pot of beliefs and religions and practices and churches and way of worshiping. And you can go to a missionary Baptist church in the southwest side of Chicago where the nurses are keeping people and people are fainting in an exuberant worship service to a Russian Greek Orthodox uh, service on the north side, or like I went to St. Hyneth where that has a Polish mass with a lot of people that attend in the morning. There's a lot of practices of worship around Chicago, and it was the same in Rome. And so Paul is writing to city people trying to explain the power of the gospel to people that live in a very congested, diverse, multi-ethnic, pluralistic society in a big city. And over these next weeks, I believe that Paul unpacks the power of the gospel more clearly than any other book found in the Bible. Scholars throughout the last 2,000 years have said Romans explains the gospel more clearly than any book in the Bible. Paul wrote the book of Romans in about 50 AD. In a, the ruler, the emperor that lived during the time of Paul, his name was Nero. Now, if you know a little bit about your church history or even world history, you'll remember that Nero was the emperor that lived when Rome burned. Many people believe that, that Nero set Rome on fire because he wanted to blame it on Christians. He hated Christians, and so after the fire started, Nero blamed the fire of Rome on Christians, and Christians became this persecuted people in about 64 AD. He was so vicious, so cruel, that it said that Nero would line the streets of Rome with crucified Christians, that you would see them, and sometimes he would tar them up and burn them and use them as, as city torches, as you see hundreds upon hundreds of Christians crucified down Rome as enemies of the state. Paul is writing to the Romans before all this happened. He's writing to Romans living in a big city, and he's presenting the gospel of Jesus in a way probably that you've never heard it explained with such power and depth that you've never experienced before in your life. And I'm not going to, because of the density of this book, be able to go verse by verse through the entire book of Romans, but I'm gonna highlight some of the passages and verses that are key for us to understand about the gospel of Jesus as presented to the Romans. I wanna begin in verse one, it says, and I'm gonna really move rapidly here, so I want you to hang on with me. Paul says, a servant of Jesus Christ called to be an apostle and set apart for the gospel of God. If you want to ask what is Romans all about, it's all about explaining the gospel. I mean, you know what the word gospel means. Gospel means good news. Good news. Romans is all about explaining the good news, the message. And Paul says, hey, I'm a servant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, an apostle's a sent one, set apart for the gospel. Paul says, I've been set apart to proclaim the gospel. 
And then he explains the essence of the gospel. Look what he says in verse 2. The gospel he promised beforehand through the prophets and the holy scriptures. Do you realize that there were people 500 years before Jesus was born that predicted the birth of Jesus in the town of Bethlehem? Isaiah the prophet predicted that Jesus was come. The psalmist predicted about Jesus and his coming. Hundreds of years before Jesus was born, there was prediction that the Messiah would be born, that he would be born in a stable, that he would be born of the line, uh, the lineage or, or the genealogy of David. There was concrete, specific, prophetic words hundreds of years before Jesus talking about that he would come, that he would be the one, that he would save the nation, that he would be the one that makes a way, that there's a Messiah that would be coming. All of the Jewish people knew about it. They waited for a Messiah to come. And it says, the prophets in the Holy Scripture regarding his son who as to his human nature was a descendant of David, if you look at the genealogy of Jesus, both through Mary and Joseph, you'll trace it back to King David, the lineage of David. And who through the spirit, on the spiritual side, of holiness was declared with power to be the Son of God. When Jesus was baptized, the Holy Spirit came upon, the dove came upon Jesus, declaring, this is my beloved Son, so he was declared by the Spirit to be the Son of God. And by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Through him and for his namesake, we receive grace and apostleship to call people from among the Gentiles to obedience to faith. And you are also among those who are called to belong to Jesus. Paul says the gospel is very simple. You have to believe that Jesus is the Son of God, not a good prophet, not a good example, not a revolutionary merely, not someone that brings social justice, but the Son of God, all God becoming all man. That's part of the gospel. And that he's also Jesus the Christ. What does Christ mean? It means Messiah. So he is the son of God, he is Messiah. What does Messiah mean? The one through whom salvation comes. Jesus is the son of God, he's the one through which salvation comes, and he is Jesus Christ our Lord. What does Lord mean? Lord means the one who manages, directs, and is master of our lives. If you receive Jesus Christ, you have to believe that he is the son of God, all God, all man. You have to believe that he's the Messiah, that salvation comes through no other except through Jesus Christ, the crucified one. And you have to believe that he is Lord, the master. When you give your life to Jesus, you give your life to the son of God, the savior of humanity, and the Lord of your life. You cannot receive Jesus Christ and be an authentic Christian if you just accept a good example in your life or a good um, 
civil rights leader like Martin Luther King or Gandhi or one of those people. No, Jesus was much more than that. He's the son of God. He's the only one through which personal salvation comes and he becomes the Lord of your life. If you have not accepted son of God, Messiah and Lord, you have not accepted the Jesus of the Bible. You may have accepted a divergent virgin version of Jesus, but he's not the Jesus explained in scripture which is at the heart of the gospel. If you miss who Jesus is, you miss who the gospel is. So Paul explains, this is the gospel to which I have been called. And then he goes on to talk about, he says, to all those that are in Rome who are loved by God and called to be saints, grace and peace to you from God our Father and from our Lord Jesus Christ. He says, to all those who are loved by God and called to be saints. By the way, the love of God goes out to all and we're all called to be saints. Some of you don't see yourself as a saint, right? To be a saint means someone to be, that's set apart unto God as holy. You don't make yourself a saint, God makes you a saint. Some of you grew up praying to different saints. Scripture's very clear about this. There's only one to pray to and that's God the Father through the mediator, Jesus the Son, and by the power of the Holy Spirit. <laughs> to pray to a saint, by the way, is the same as praying to your, the person sitting next to you, because if they've been washed by the blood of Jesus, they're also a saint. You say, Pastor, I'd never pray, for the, pray to this person. <laughs> well, then you should pray to no one else except God, through Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit. Because we're all called to be saints in Jesus Christ. And then he goes on to explain, and I skip a few verses here where he talks about how thankful he is for them, how he remembers them in his prayer, how he's been called to present the gospel. And I want to focus on verse 16 and 17 because I think in here lies the essence of the power to change. The Apostle Paul says in verse 16 and 17, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel. I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, why would Paul say that? Paul says that because he lives in a big city where there's a lot of fancy philosophies and a lot of intelligent people that look down on the simple presentation of the gospel and viewed that there were other more sophisticated, more enlightened ways of transformation. And not much has changed in 2,000 years. There are scientists today that look down upon the gospel. There are philosophers in today's society that look down upon the gospel. There are sociologists that would categorize the gospel as simply a sociological phenomena. There are university teachers that would scoff, scoff at the simplicity of the gospel. There are businessmen who believe that the gospel is just a crutch for weak people. There are there are hedonists, people that throw themselves into pleasure, that believe that they live just for the moment and the next moment of happiness and wave of high is their God in their life. And so there are many people in our society today that have no room, no respect 
for the gospel of Jesus Christ. They think it's too simple, it's too easy. A man hanging on a cross could be your hope or salvation. Ha, how could that change anybody? And Paul declares to this sophisticated, enlightened, mega city called Rome, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, why are you not ashamed of the gospel, Paul? He says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the, say it with me, power of God unto salvation. The dunamis is the Greek word. It's the same word we get the word dynamite from. This explosive power because the gospel is the power of God that brings change to people's lives. It's power. There's power in the gospel. I want you to understand this because this is really, really important for me to understand. Ah, I wish I could preach this well. The gospel is so simple that a six-year-old can understand it, but it's so complex, so intricate, so theo theologically high that even the most sophisticated, greatest minds and theologians down through the universe could rate volumes upon volumes upon volumes and still not even begin to scratch the surface of the complexity of the gospel. It is so simple that a slave in the time of Rome that was illiterate, illiterate could come and receive Jesus Christ and experience the power. It is so complex that the philosophers of the days could not quite grasp the complexity of God being made man and being the salvation and through his death on the cross vicariously bring salvation and forgiveness to humanity. And I want to make sure, you may have been attending New Life for some time or maybe you're just new here, but I want to make sure that without a shadow of a doubt, you understand the gospel because without the gospel, there is no power to change. Unless you have the gospel, receive the gospel, embrace the gospel, then there will be no power to change because the gospel is the power of God to bring salvation and change to your life. No gospel, no power. That's why there's churches all across this nation that have stopped preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ and the people in the pews are not changing. That's why there's churches all across this nation that have abandoned the Bible, stopped preaching the cross, have tried to get a more elaborate, philosophical, pluralistic, inclusive doctrine that eliminates the cross and the gospel of Jesus that at times is offensive. And their churches have no power to change people's lives. People are not being changed, converted, radically turned around in their lives because if you cut the gospel if you cut the gospel out of the church, you end up with a powerless church. If you cut the message of Jesus out of the gospel, you have no power to change people's lives. You have empty religion that has no power to transform people. The gospel has power to change people's lives. Now, some of you, what you say, what is the essence of the gospel? The essence of the gospel is this Romans very clear about it. All throughout Romans it says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. In essence, what Paul was telling the Romans is that there's a lot of people in our society today that believe that they 
Well, that they are good enough to make it before God. In fact, I happen to believe that there's probably people in this auditorium that you, if I were to say to you today, if you were to die today and stand before God, what would be your destiny that you would shrug your shoulders and say, well, I'm a pretty good person. You say, I don't really murder anybody. I'm not like those people that stick up old women and rob their purses. I mean, I'm not perfect. I'm only human. We all have our mistakes, but you know, I'm not a bad person. You should see my neighbor two houses down. He's a bad person. And you have not embraced the gospel fully because you have not understood that you needed the gospel. You've been under this delusion of goodness, this delusion of comparison, this delusion that your life is better than a lot of people that you know, and so therefore, since your life is better than other people that you know, that if you were to die today and stand before God, that somehow God, because he's good and he's warm and he's fuzzy and he's loving, would somehow say, hey, come on in. But I want to backtrack a little bit and tell you what the gospel tells us. The first thing that the gospel tells us is that we're all sinners and that none of us, no, not one, is righteous and all of our good works are as dirty rags before God and that none of us apart from the gospel can be made right with God. You say, well, how can that be, pastor? I'm sitting here thinking I'm a pretty good person. Let's analyze your goodness for a moment. Can we do that? Uh, you've heard me talk about this before, but I like to illustrate it this way. Let's say that you're a very, very, very good person, extremely good person. You, you're, you're almost like Mother Teresa. You're Mother Teresa's cousin. I mean, you're so good that you only sin three times a day. That means that sin of getting mad, jealousy, lust, Things that you should do that you don't do, sins of omission, little white lies, all those things that you do in a whole day, in a whole day, you only sin an average of three times. Would you say that's a pretty good person? I would. I think most of us sin a lot more than three times a day, but you only sin three times a day. And let's say you are age 40. How many 40-year-olds or around 40 do we have in this place? All right, we got a few. No, people aren't admitting here. All right. So you're 40 years old and you, you, you die and you come before God and, 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 and you're suddenly before the gates of heaven and you, you're all convinced that you're so good and you think that you're going to stand before the gates of heaven and it's going to be like Target where you step on the doors and they just automatically open for you. And so you're there like, all right, pearly gates, here I am. You step on them and the pearly gates don't seem to open. And you're like, hold on a second, there must be a mistake. And you stand before God, the judge of the universe who holds heaven and earth in his hands. And you present yourself before God and you say, God, here I am. I'm a good person. I belong in there. And God says, let's look at your goodness. Let's examine your goodness for a second. And you say, you know what? I am so good. I only sin about three times a day. And so we start doing the math. If you only sin three times a day, there's 30, 365 days in a year, which means that you would sin how many times? 
a little over a thousand times a year. And now you're 40 years old. Let's say that in your early days you sinned very little because you were just a baby, but you made up for it in your later days. And so you stand before God and you have 40,000 sins against you. 40,000 sins when you're an extremely good person. 40,000 sins when you're almost like Mother Teresa. 40,000 sins checked against you and you stand before God and God looks at your record and you say, well, I'm really good. And God says, well, there's 40,000 sins against you. How can you say that you're really good? And you say, well, compared to my neighbors, he's got a million and she's got 6 million. I only have 40,000. And you say, well, what's the number that you can make it in? And God says, the number of sins allowed to make it into my kingdom is zero. The Bible says, be perfect as my Father in heaven is perfect. Be holy as my Father in heaven is holy. There is none righteous that, no unrighteous that will stand before God. No sin that will stand before the holiness of God. And so in desperation, you throw your arms to the heaven and you say, my God, then who will ever make it into your kingdom? Zero sins is impossible. Not one person can make it into your kingdom. There is no one that will ever be before you. We're all condemned and destined to an eternity without you. This is impossible. Salvation is not attainable to anyone in all of humanity. God, this is unfair. God says, no, it's fair. I'm a holy God. My holiness and blameless cannot allow anybody to enter. But that's why I did make a way. His name is Jesus. You said God saw from heaven that no one could keep the law, the standards and the rules of God because we all failed. And when God observed from heaven that not none was righteous, that no one would make it, that no one could find salvation, that no one would live a just life, that there was not one that would live a perfect life, that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, God came up with a solution. God decided that he would do the ultimate sacrifice, the biggest, the hardest, the most difficult, the ultimate price would be paid. God said, I will send my son my one and only son. He is me, I am him. And I will send him and he will go to earth and he will live a sinless life and I will send him to be crucified and I will send him to be tortured and I will send him to bear on, his, on himself the sins of all humanity because unless I send Jesus, everyone would be destined for eternity without me. There is no other way. If there were another way, I'd find it. If there were another solution, I would offer it. There is no other solution except the name of Jesus and the cross of Jesus. And Romans tells us that Jesus was born and lived a sinless life. And when that day came, when Jesus was between the ages of 33 to 36, that he carried a cross on his back that had been beaten and bruised, his face that had been slapped, thorns that had been 
pressed into his head. Thorns, I've seen those thorns in Israel. Thorns two, two and a half, three inches long placed in his head. And as Jesus hung upon that cross, the son of God, the sinless son of God, Every rape, every murder, every bigotry, every lie, every incest, every genocide and massacre, every hateful thought, every jealous heart, every dark bitterness, every child molestation that's occurred, every act of violence that humanity has brought upon itself, Every robbery, every lie, every adultery, every abuse, the most atrocious, darkest evil of sins were piled upon Jesus. And on that moment on the cross, the Son of God hung upon that cross all the sins that had ever been committed in the past, all the sins that were being committed in the present, and all the sins that would ever be committed into the future were piled upon the Son of God. Millions upon millions upon millions upon 10 millions of sin were piled upon the Son of God. And Jesus himself in that dark hour of the cross raised his head towards heaven and he said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because at that one moment in history, Jesus, who was always God and with God and was God, the sinless Savior, took upon him the shame and guilt of humanity. Every sin that you've ever committed, Jesus personally bore on that cross. And when Jesus died and they took him off the cross, some people thought it was finished, it was over, nothing will ever happen again. But on the third day, there was rumblings within the tomb. On the third day, there was a light that happened. On the third day, a glorious body resurrected because, you see, there was no sin upon him to hold him down. Jesus, the Son of God, had just died and borne the penalty and payment and death for all of our sins, the sins we've committed and the sins we haven't even yet committed that he knew we would commit upon himself. And he said, God, I will take it. So you say, well, pastor, then we're all forgiven then, right? Right? I mean, he bore my sin. Jesus died. Then all humanity is salvaged, right? Well, the Bible says that God gives us the gift. But there's a difference between someone giving us the gift and us receiving the gift. How many of you know I can give a gift, but unless you receive it, it's still not yours? How many of you know I can offer you a gift, but unless you say, I will take it, then my offering a gift doesn't equal you receiving the gift. Here's the picture I want you to see and have. The Spirit of God is offering the gift of salvation to all humanity. He's saying, come, come. I have a gift that you need, come. 
I have a sacrifice that was paid. Come. I, I have something that can wash you, change you, cleanse you, turn your life around. The last words of Revelation is that the Spirit of God says, come. The bride says, come. But many are not coming. Many are refusing to come. Many are turning their backs on the gift. Many are following their own way, trying to fill their own life, following different roads, embracing other religions, filling their life with things like Eddie talked about. Listen, the, the Spirit is saying, come. The bride is saying, come. Jesus is saying, come. So that there is not anybody without excuse the gospel is being offered to all humanity, but not everybody is receiving the gospel. The tragedy of the gospel is that it's offered, but the gift is not taken. You say, well, pastor, how is that gift taken? Uh, simply, but not cheaply. It's very clear in Romans, it tells us, for the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. How do we receive it? We receive it by believing that Jesus is the Son of God, that He's Messiah, and that He is the Lord. Believing enough to take Him as Savior, as Messiah and Lord, and to repent, leave our old way behind and saying, that's not my way anymore. My new way is God's way. Jesus said, repent and believe and you shall be saved. You see, God is offering a gift, but so many are not receiving that gift. And let me tell you here, just because you hang around the church doesn't make, make you someone that's received the gift. Just because your grandmother has a Bible doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you were baptized as a baby doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you were Christian doesn't make you a Christian. Just because you sat in the pew that you sat in this church does not make you a believer unless you have received that gift, repented of your sins, embraced it. At that moment, what happens is our sins are washed away and the Holy Spirit comes inside of us and he begins to change us from the inside out. The outward expression is believer's baptism. The inward manifestation is that our sins are washed. The Holy Spirit comes inside of us and the Bible says whoever is in Christ is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. You don't change your life to become born again, but once you're born again, you are changed. You don't try to clean up your life so God will accept you, but once you are accepted, of God, you cannot live the same because when you are washed, you can't still live in sin. When you have the Holy Spirit, he will drive you to be a different person. You will be driven to be more like God. You will be a new creation like God describes. I'm gonna ask you to stand with me. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. For in the gospel, a righteousness from God is revealed, a righteousness is, that is by faith. The righteous will live by faith. Listen, I want you to hear me and I want you to hear me well. The only way that you can be made right with God 
is through receiving what Jesus did for you on that cross 2,000 years ago and having that blood sprinkled on your life. Through faith, through repentance, through the manifestation of baptism. There is no other way. If there were another way, God would have made that way. There are some of you here today that are religious, but you are not right with God because you've never, never done what I just talked about. You have never understood and received and embraced the gospel. It's never been true for your life. So there is no power to change. You've been trying to be religious, but you don't have the spirit of God that changes you. I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's the power of God unto salvation.